0: Great, Really great. Uh, good morning again and welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here and we are glad, we are glad that you are here with us uh, this morning. If you are new or newer to our church, uh, I am one of the pastors, but we also have our lead pastor who usually preaches on most Sundays, who has been on sabbatical all summer. So uh, he comes back tomorrow. So, and the church said, Amen. Uh, I actually got a, I got a text from him this morning. And he showed me a picture of his uh, online calendar, which said, sabbatical ends. And then I responded with a great uh, uh, great gif from the office, of the whole office, jumping around and cheering and stuff. So we're really excited to have Chris back. Uh, he'll be back uh, here next Sunday. You'll, you'll all see him then. Um, and on, on behalf of his family and, and my family and the rest of the leadership and staff at Hiawatha, Thanks for praying this past summer. It's, uh, it was a really great summer for Pastor Chris and his family. A great summer of rest and uh, restoration and uh, being focused on Jesus and his wife and his family. And uh, our church will be a much healthier, even more healthy place uh, going forward as, as he comes back uh, to lead us in this next season. So we're excited to have him back. But thanks for your prayers. Uh, in general, this summer went great. And so uh, current elders and staff, we really thank you for um, praying for us throughout this summer. So we right now are in a sermon series in the book of Acts, which is uh, a, a historical book. It's written teaching theology, but through narrative, through actual stories that really did happen, like Peter said, uh, speaking about the early church. So Jesus has died, risen. He sent his spirit uh, into his church, into Christians. And he said, go into all the world and preach this gospel, make disciples, plant churches. And that is what we have seen over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And today we're going to look at Acts 19, uh, verses 11 through 20. We're going to see some demonic attacks, some pretty wild stuff, yet uh, great hope that comes from the gospel. Even amidst some of the darkest, most evil, most powerful things in this world, and we'll even go beyond demonic attacks and talk about uh, uh, death and, and sin, that there is still hope in the gospel. We're going to see that. So we're going to see... Uh, As we read this, I'm going to warn you, it's a very strange yet powerful passage. A a real weird, unique passage that tells us powerful, beautiful things about our Savior and about ourselves. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, If you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen. We're going to be reading Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. It's also on your uh, insert in your worship folder if you'd like to follow along. Starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, in whom was the evil spirit, leapt onto them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house, naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing, And divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So before we begin to interpret what this passage means and apply it to our own lives, we first have to understand. What is going on? So you probably said, uh, wait, what just happened? What, what was that all about? So let's first, let's walk through and understand what this passage is about. And then we can begin to understand yet and apply it to our lives. So the first thing we, that we need to see and notice is that God is the one that's doing this. So even though Paul is looked upon, it kind of seems like he's a hero, okay? God is actually the hero. And, and Luke makes that clear. The author of Acts, he says, and God was doing these things through Paul. So God is actually the hero of our passage here today. Paul is an instrument. God is using someone, and it is Paul. Yet God is the author of our good works, and he is the power that is behind them. So Paul is being used in miraculous, unbelievable ways here in this city. Verse 11 said, and Paul was doing extraordinary, or sorry, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. So to be clear, we're not going to apply this passage to our lives right here. This doesn't mean that we should start a prayer or a a prayer hanky ministry, even though you maybe have seen that on really late night uh, cable TV. That's not a thing, even though I'm sure there are some great quilters in our church, great sewers that could uh, really run with this if this actually were what we were supposed to do. But rather, what's going on here, Luke's just describing what is happening. He's not prescribing. He's not saying, Christians do this everywhere. He's saying, this is what happened. This is what the Holy Spirit did in Ephesus in this time. He's describing what has happened. Both because we don't see this throughout the Bible, nor do we see it commanded to the churches in the New Testament. But rather, what's going on here, as Bible commentator, uh, Tony Merida writes, He says, in a city steeped in superstition and interest in magic, God kindly condescended to show the Ephesians his sovereign power in a way that would get their attention and draw them to the Savior. So in a strange passage, we should see God's gracious love moving towards this city and this group of people. He chooses to work in a unique way that would be incredibly meaningful and persuasive and powerful to them specifically. He loved the Ephesians so much that he contextualized the gospel for them in a way that they would understand and receive. These strange miracles in the eyes of the Ephesians give great credibility to the Lord that is behind these, to the one true God. So God God does use Paul in these amazing and powerful, unbelievable ways And not only do people who are getting healed and people who are, uh, yeah, on the receiving end of these miracles noticed, but who else noticed? The itinerant Jewish exorcists. You didn't know that that was a thing, right? Itinerant Jewish exorcists. So in the first century, in this city, the city that highly valued the occult and magic, uh, there were some religious Jewish men that went around from place to place, They're itinerant, all throughout uh, this region of Asia who claim to exercise demons, who who claim to have the power to cast out evil spirits out of people. And in a city that had a very high awareness of the spiritual world and loved magic, there was a prophet to be made. If you could act in this way, if you could cast out these evil spirits. So these guys see what Paul is doing and they think, oh, we finally figured out the magic word. For forever we've been trying to cast out these demons in Belshazzar's name or in Joseph's name, but now we found the magic word. It's actually, it's in Jesus' name because that's what Paul does, and it works for him. They think we've been scamming people for years into thinking that our holy water and our magic scrolls and our incantations are what's really casting out these demons, but now we see this guy Paul doing it by saying in Jesus' name, and it works. So they foolishly try and use Jesus Like a magic trick. They try and take his name for themselves in order to gain power, influence, and wealth. And what happens when they try to do this? When they go up to a man possessed by a demon and invoke Jesus' name without knowing Jesus themselves? I actually found some ancient renderings of of probably what happened here. Can't read it, but but the demon-possessed Lego says, I know of Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And then in the next scene, the seven sons of Sceva get manhandled. And and that actually is Lego blood on the bottom. So they get owned. So this evil, powerful demon doesn't recognize these seven exorcists. They're invoking Jesus' name, yet they don't know him. They're using Jesus' name as a magic word, yet unlike true Christians, they don't have Jesus' spirit within them. They're using a name and a word that they think will give them great power, yet it is not recognized by the powerful evil spirit. This reminds me of this scene in uh, the first Avengers movie. The spoiler alert: this has been out for like ten years, but I'm gonna tell you how this great scene in the end works. So there's this guy named Loki. Just know that he's the bad guy. He's kind of godlike, and uh, he stands up to Hulk. If you know Hulk, he's like the big strong. Really strong green guy. And Loki, he stands up to him, and he declares the name God. He thinks that if I finally just say, Hulk, I'm a god, that Hulk will kind of like bow down to him and and have to obey him. So kind of like in our story here, Loki claims a name, thinking that it will give him great power over another. Like the sons of Sceva, Loki thinks using uh, this name will give him great power over his foe. So he stands up to the Hulk, and he says, I am a god, you dull creature. Yet, like with these exorcists, who think that using Jesus' name will give them great power, like a lucky charm, Hulk doesn't bow down to Loki when he uses this term, God. But rather, (laughs) that happens. And then he says, Puny God. Puny God. I love that. And like Loki, these Jewish exorcists get plummeted by the demon. And then our passage today ends us with getting to the results of what happens out of these two powerful events, right? So so Paul doing these extraordinary miracles, and then this, uh, this scene with the sons of Sceva and this demon. Out of these events, we see what happens in the city of Ephesus. Verse 17 says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both the Jews and the Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was extolled. So the residents of this city see the true and the real and the power of this God named Jesus and how he is using his servant, Paul. They're seeing also that his name is not just an incantation or a lucky charm or some magic word something to be used and abused for their own power or wealth. And so a healthy reverence and fear fills this city, knowing their place in relation to this real and powerful God. And it is in this setting that a great work of God happens, not just within the city, but even within the church too. Many new believers who are brand new Christians who have just Uh, Recently, believed in Jesus Christ are now convicted of their own sins. The Holy Spirit moves in a powerful revival, awakening type way and leads these new believers, these young believers, to confess their sins. They repent. They publicly declare that they had sin in their life and they turn from it and turn to Christ. And like we've been saying, Ephesus was a city that loved the occult, that loved magic. And so it doesn't surprise us that many of these new Christians, that was their past life. And in this famous painting, we see what happens in this city. So we see Paul preaching the gospel. It's kind of hard to see at the bottom, and this is just getting started. But we see that uh, these new Ephesian believers come publicly. They bring their books full of magic, incantations, and spells, and they burn them, publicly repenting of their sin. In their past lives, they demonstrate publicly their allegiance, not to their former culture or to their old hobbies or to their old uh, gods or spirits, but they demonstrate publicly their allegiance to the one true God. So that's what happened. That's what our passage is about. That's filling in some of the details, the cultural, the historical things that help us understand what's going on in verses 11 through 20. So now we can begin to uh, interpret. And apply this story to our lives. We can understand what is God trying to tell us through this this unique and strange story. What does it mean for us? And sometimes when we preach through passages, they kind of lend themselves well to preaching through, sometimes we say, a divine lens. We kind of look at this passage looking through a a lens, looking at the divine aspects of the story, and then others uh, through a, a human lens. And that's what we're going to do in our passage today. So, so one lens, the, the, the human lens, helps us answer the questions, what is true for us today? What does this mean for us uh, individually as persons and, and as a church? And then how should this affect us? How should we apply this to our lives? And then the other lens is the, is the divine lens. We look at, at the same passage and see these events and these characters and these problems and these, these solutions as a way to teach us Theology, as a way to teach us realities and doctrines and, and, and see these symbols and these people as uh, parts of the gospel, as the fruit and the effect of the gospel, and as a way to teach us truth, to teach us the gospel through or via narrative or through a story. So we're going to start by looking at this passage through the, the human lens, and then we'll end by looking at it through the divine lens. So as we look through at this passage through the human lens, the first thing we see is that uh, for salvation, we need to know Jesus. And we've actually seen this the past three passages. So three Luke showing us three times in a row, people think that they're in, people think that they're saved, people think that they're forgiven and welcomed into God's family and okay with God without knowing of Jesus, And we see again and again and again that that is not the case. For salvation, we need to know Jesus. Last week's passage, we saw uh, some people who knew a ton about the Bible, who were even devoutly religious, yet they didn't know Jesus. They were outside of the faith. They actually weren't saved. And Paul taught them the full and true gospel. They believed it. They were baptized. They were saved. They entered the church. Now, this week, we're seeing other religious-type people these sons of Sceva, these Jewish itinerant exorcists who know a lot of Bible, and here they even pretend to know Jesus. They're trying to get the spiritual fruit and the power that comes from faith in Christ without knowing Christ themselves. They're they're using Jesus for what it will get them rather than wanting Jesus himself. What we learn here is that we cannot just put Jesus' name on something. And get the benefits of salvation. We cannot just call ourselves a Christian and then just be a Christian any more than we can just put on a tutu and be a member of the New York City ballet. Jesus addressed this in his ministry over and over again. He knew that people would try to use him, use his name to get power, to get wealth, to get influence. He knew that people would try to use his name and just use him for their own selfish desires and pride in greed, all the while rejecting him. And so he taught about that. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or not everyone who calls themselves a Christian, not everyone who uses Jesus' name in their speech and in defining themselves will, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who will enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Which you're probably asking the question, well, then what is the will of the Father? And Jesus teaches that as well. In John 6, 29 and verse 40, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. If you want a work to do in order to be obedient to God or to follow God or to understand what His will, this is the work, that you believe in him whom he has sent. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So today, if you come to Hiawatha and you're wondering, what's God's will for my life? This is God's will for your life. If you want to know God's will for your life, he wants you to believe in his son. He wants you to trust in Jesus Christ. He wants you to be saved. That is his desire for every person in this room. And in our passage today, we're seeing people use Jesus' name for what it gets them, rather than just wanting Jesus themselves. The reality of of receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior will cost us everything, but it's worth it. And we desperately want to lose all things for the sake of knowing Christ. We see this play out with these new believers in this city of Ephesus. Their new faith in Jesus, their new allegiance in him alone It costs them greatly. So far in Acts, not only here in Ephesus, but so far throughout Acts, we've seen many, many different ways that being a disciple of Christ costs us something. We've seen in nearly every city persecution, opposition, violence, in nearly every city that the gospel is preached, the church and the gospel messengers receive persecution, violence, and opposition. We've also seen great cost for both the sending churches and for the global missionaries and the church planters and the ministers and the leaders of the gospel. Great cost that it takes to spread the gospel across the world. Financial cost, relational cost, resources. And now we're getting a glimpse into another reality of the cost that it takes to follow Christ. The cost of being a disciple. Verse 18, we read, And many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their former practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So in this, this context, in this city, the Holy Spirit moves in a powerful way in these new believers' lives. He convicts these Christians... Of their sin. These young Christians who are new in their faith. And he gives them the desire. He gives them the motivation. And he gives them the power. To repent from their old ways. To repent of their sin. To repent of their worshiping and turning to idols. In these magical dark evil arts. And to, and to turn from trusting in their own prosperity and power and influence and wealth. That comes from the occult and they choose not just to sell their books to like other people that can still practice them and, and make some money off of it, but rather they realize that these evil incantations, these evil magic books are worshiping demons. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping idols. And so they burn them. And they burn them publicly. And it's costly for them. For this group of Christians in this city, they destroy an estimated $5 to $10 million to 10000000 dollars worth of books. Jesus is such a great reward to them. He is such a better treasure to them. His salvation is so priceless that they're willing to burn and destroy five to ten million dollars of books. They give up their occupations for many of them. They give up their hobbies. They give up their supposed security and a fortune in order to follow Jesus as Christ and Lord and Savior. Discipleship to Christ is costly. It will cost you everything. It will cost you losing your life. And in a weird but true way, in losing your life, you will actually gain it. And not just life now, but eternal life. Perfected, resurrected life in paradise for eternity with our saviors. Our souls were designed to find infinite satisfaction in our God in Jesus himself so anything that we can give up in order to receive that will be worth it and here in our passage not only did they get rid of their demonic possessions but remember that they did this publicly they didn't do this in a fire in their backyard with big fences around it but they did this in front of the city they did it publicly and in doing so they're also we read they're confessing their sins They're declaring the evil that they had practiced and done in their hearts, the demonic worship that they had been a part of. And in this, we see that for Christians, confessing sin is normal. It is the norm for us. Now, I'm not talking about the Catholic form of confession that involves a a wooden box and a priest and like a kind of veiled window there, if you're familiar with that. But when when we say that confession is normal— For the Christian life, what we're saying is that confession of sin and temptation is a regular part of the Christian life. We confess our sins to other Christians. We confess our sins to God. Or as local theologian Amy Peterson puts it, that's my wife if you didn't know, (laughs) confession is our normal posture as believers. So why is it the norm for someone who follows Christ? Why is confession normal, natural for us? Because it is good for us. It is good for our spiritual health and our relationship with Christ. And now through the gospel, confession of sin is safe. First, confession of sin for a Christian, it's safe for us because of the gospel. In the world, confession is is incredibly uncommon. Right? Where, where in the world do we see politicians or powerful people or sports people or actresses or CEOs, when do we see them stand up and just say, hey, you don't know this, but let me tell you about the sin that I do. Or let me tell you about my past. It never happens, right? In our world, it's nearly completely absent of confession. Unless someone gets caught, their dirt, their sin, their past, their thoughts, their motives, their desires, they all stay hidden. Why? Because if it gets out, they'll be punished. If it gets out, they'll be shamed. We'll hate them. They'll be guilty. They'll be ostracized. We'll abandon them, right? So in this world, we never dare confess our sins. For all those reasons. But through the gospel, we are now wanted. Through the gospel, we are now desired. We are accepted. We are secure We're forgiven. And in Christ, we are made innocent. So, as Christians, it's now safe for us to confess our sins because we are secure and forgiven and desired by our God. So, the Christian can confess sin both to God and to other Christians, to brothers and sisters in Christ, because of the powerful, because of the power and the effect of the gospel. Now, through faith in Jesus, even though we're guilty, we're declared innocent. Even though we should be embarrassed and full of shame, because of the gospel, we're now forgiven and restored. Even though we have done evil against others and against God, because of the gospel, we are not hated, but are reconciled. Even though we're selfish, greedy, lustful, violent, and full of hatred and pride, through the gospel, Christ takes that punishment onto himself, the punishment we deserve, and then exchange gives us his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, his innocence. So the Christian life is one of humble confession to each other and especially to our God because we know that in Christ, we're safe. In Christ, we've been accepted, we've been forgiven, we've been made innocent, and we are now secure. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes, he says, If you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would still be no match for God's mercy. Think about how bad you are right now. If you were a hundred times worse than who you are, your sins would still be no match for God's mercy. So Christians can confess sin because we're safe and secure because of the gospel. And then secondly, Christians conf- uh, Christian confession, it's good for us. It's healthy for us. It's good for our spiritual relationship. Uh, uh, yeah, our spiritual relationship with God. James 5.16, written to the church, says, Therefore, church, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Healing comes through confessing of sin. We see this in Ephesus. We see it play out in our own lives. We see it here in James chapter 5. When we don't confess our sin, what happens? The enemy accuses us, right? If we sin and then hide it, we hear the enemy accusing us, lying to us, whispering in our ears, how could you do that? You call yourself a Christian. What would happen if other people knew about what you did? What would God think about you? He's so disappointed in you. You are such a letdown. He's embarrassed to call you his own. When we don't confess, the enemy accuses us like that. When we don't confess our sin, we're tempted to earn our forgiveness. Right? We sin, we're embarrassed, we're guilty. And so what do we try to do? We try to earn our forgiveness. We try to do it through penance. We try to feel really bad before we go and tell God we're sorry or confess our sin to others. We try to not sin for a few days and then feel good enough to actually go ask for forgiveness. Or we try to just show lots of remorse. We try to feel really bad about it. And what's really happening there is that we're trying to earn our forgiveness. And when we sin and when we don't confess, the reality is we're much, much more likely to keep on sinning. When we sin and then it stays hidden in the darkness, we're so much more likely to continue on sinning. Both because we fear despair and guilt and shame as well as selfishly or sinfully, we think, well, I might as well just keep on sinning a few more times and then confess later on. But Christian confession's good for us. We're called to do it. It's good for our spiritual health. And in response to these three things, when we confess, when the enemy says, how dare you? We say, yes. We can respond to that. We can say, yes, I have sinned, but... That is not my identity anymore in Christ. Yes, I am guilty, but Christ paid the penalty I deserve for those exact sins. And now in Christ, I am forgiven. In Christ, I am wanted, accepted, made righteous, and am clean. I am secure. So these accusations bounce right off of me. They're no longer true of me. When Christians confess, we know that we can't earn our salvation. That's part of confessing. We can't earn our forgiveness. So when we tell a brother or sister in Christ, when we confess to God, we're saying, I know I cannot earn forgiveness for this sin. So it's great for our souls, for us to demonstrate with our bodies and with our mouths that we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn our forgiveness. And we also remind the, the brother or sister that we're confessing too, that we're all sinners saved by grace. And third and finally, when we confess our sin, number three, rarely happens, right? If we confess right away, we don't continue. We move on. We remember our identities in Christ. And the gospel feels and looks so much more beautiful right after we've sinned. I tell people who, and myself all the time, people who are wrestling with sin, wrestling with doubts, wrestling with their past, hate what they've done. I say, Those feelings, while if they lead to shame is a bad thing, but those feelings, bring them to worship with you on a Sunday morning. Bring them to your Bible study. Bring them to your community group or your quiet time or your prayer life. So when you sing about God forgiving your sins, it's not just words on a screen. But, but those sins have a face. Those sins have a feeling. You have a memory of how evil your heart is and your motives and your thoughts. So when you sing about the gospel, when you, when you share the gospel, when you read about the gospel, it hits your heart. It feels so good. The gospel feels and looks even more beautiful on the heels of confessing our sin to God and to others. So that was the human, human lens. We're only saved through Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship, of following Jesus, is great. And Christians regularly do and should confess of their sin. Now let's turn and look at the same passage through a divine lens. Let's look at the same passage and see what spiritual truths are taught through this story. Or what spiritual truths do we see playing out symbolically? What do we learn theologically from the narrative of Acts 19, verses 11 through 20? So let's look at the divine side. Verse 15 said, But this evil spirit answered these uh, exorcists, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So what does this teach us? What is this story? How is this a picture of us? It shows that this is actually our state apart from Christ. This story is a picture of humanity before Jesus. Humanity without Christ. So the men in this story are us. And the demon possessed person or the demon itself is a picture and a symbolic of evil. Of our sin or of death. Or to use our analogy from earlier, the men in this story uh, are us, and we are Loki in this story. And our sin and death is the Hulk. So in our state, apart from Christ, this, this is the story. Satan's sin, and death are beating us down. And us, apart from Christ, are lying in an imprint in the ground without hope, bleeding out. We are Loki, getting completely pummeled and owned by Satan, sin, and death. So how is this a picture of us? How exactly does this story show the human condition apart from Jesus Christ? Let's just go through it. Four, four different ways that we see this. First, there is no, we have, apart from Christ, humans have no authority over demons. We can't just stand up to a spirit, an evil dark spirit and, and say, Tell them to do something. We have no authority over them. Nor do we have an ability to defeat evil in general, including the sin that is in our own hearts. Secondly, we see in here, we are mastered and overpowered by our sin. We're enslaved to it, actually. Sin is our master, apart from Christ, which means we serve it. We are slaves to it. And it overpowers us. We cannot defeat sin on our own. Thirdly, we're naked and full of shame. To be clear, we're not talking about being naked is a shameful act. But if we remember the the beginning part of the Bible, the first time Adam and Eve sin, the first time sin enters into the world, one of the first consequences of that is that they realize that they are naked and sinful and full of shame and so they hide. And so the, real, the spiritual reality of this is when laid bare, when seen perfectly in our sins, we become full of shame. Not because we're naked, but because we're symbolically naked. When, when we're not hidden by anything else, when we're just, uh, our, our full real self is shown spiritually, we are sinful and we are full of shame. And then fourth and finally, what do we see here in this passage that tells of our reality? Apart from Christ, we're, we're, we're not just wounded like they are here. We're mortally wounded. We're bleeding out. We're, we're the walking dead, both spiritually and physically. Our bodies are spiritual corpses. The, the New Testament describes our, our state apart from Christ as being dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. These physical bodies are literally deteriorating and breaking down. Or as 2 Corinthians 4 says, our outer selves are wasting away. And so this is our reality apart from Christ. This is everyone's state, everyone in humanity, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. But because of what Jesus offers, offers to everyone, the story does not stop here. Jesus not only humbles himself, but he enters into our story by adding humanity to his divinity. But he comes as a servant. Jesus comes to live the life we could never live on our behalf. And he died the death we deserve because of his unthinkable and deep love for us. Jesus deliberately enters into the full human experience and story on our behalf. Hebrews 2 describes this. Hebrews 2 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself likewise, Partook of the same thing. So Jesus became human. He still was fully God, but he added humanity. He added flesh and blood. Jesus himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil. So instead of us being utterly destroyed by sin, Satan, and death, Jesus takes our place. No longer is it now Satan, sin, and death destroying us, but rather Jesus steps in our place. He is the one who dies. So now let's look at Christ. Let's look at those four things that describe our story that we see in Acts 19 and see how Jesus responds to those, how Jesus lives the life we could not live, dies the death we deserve. So the first one we have no th- authority. Over sin, over death, over evil. But Jesus has authority. Over Satan, demons, and even death himself. Jesus can defeat death. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God, which is a title for Jesus, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What we could never do, he can. Secondly, we are mastered By our sins. We are slaves to our sin. Yet Jesus was not mastered by his sin. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without giving in, yet without sin. He lived the perfect, sinless life that we could never live. While he had all the power in the universe, he literally could have called down a million angels to defeat evil or to get himself off that cross. He chose to be overpowered by Satan. He chose to be mastered by death. He chose to love us unto death even though he didn't have to, even though he could have defeated those. But he chose to love us unto death. Third, we are naked and full of shame. Jesus takes that shame on himself. Jesus was literally stripped naked. He was literally tortured publicly and shamefully. He took our shame onto himself on that cross. Colossians 2 describes this, the cross saying that Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to shame. He went through shame, naked, bloody, hanging publicly on a cross, unjustly, And in doing so, he defeated our enemies and put them to shame. Triumphing over them, Colossians 2 says. And then finally, we're mortally wounded. Our sin leads to death. And like us, Jesus was wounded. And Jesus actually tasted death. Yet he was innocent. He didn't deserve it. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced. For our iniquities. He was wounded and died. Because of our sin. For our sin. And he died a torturous execution. In our place. So so far we've seen in Acts 19. We've seen a real story that actually happens. That symbolically pictures us. The human condition. Us apart from Christ. And now we've seen how Jesus took our place. How he did and, and accomplished and received what we deserve. And now we're going to see, now out of that, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did, now these four things are not true of us anymore. Let's continue to go on. So now in Christ, the story changes again. Now in Christ, because of the gospel, because of Jesus' death on the cross, in our place, we are given victory over Satan sin and death. If you are a Christian today, that is your reality. Satan, sin and death have no more power over you because we are in Christ. We are in that hero that just beats to death our enemies in our place. Now in Christ, we are the Hulk and Satan, sin and death are defeated. Because of the gospel, we are given victory. So let's go through these four things one more time. Now in Christ... Here's our reality. If you're a Christian, this is your reality. This is your identity. Now in Christ, you won't be overcome by evil. We're on the winning side now. Our enemy is defeated. Now we actually can have victory over sin in our lives. Now in Christ, we are free. We no longer are slaves to sin. Apart from Christ, we have to go back to sin over and over again. We cannot not sin. But now in Christ, we're free. We're no longer slaves to it. We have freedom in Christ to live victorious lives. We are no longer imprisoned by sin and death. Romans 6.22 says, Christian, you have been set free from sin. Now in Christ, we can have victory. There's hope for us. We no longer have to sin. Now we have the powerful Holy Spirit inside of us that allows us to defeat sin and temptation. Thirdly, now in Christ, we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. His purity, his holiness. We're no longer shameful because we're full of sin. Now Christ literally covers us. He puts his robe of righteousness over us. And all that God can see and all that the church can see and all that we should see is Christ's righteousness, Christ's holiness, Christ's innocence, now given to us because he took on our shame. Now in Christ, we are secure, accepted. You are wanted by your Lord and Savior and Creator. Romans ten eleven says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If we trust in Jesus Christ, shame has no place in our lives anymore. And 1 John 2, 28 says, If we abide in Jesus Christ, if we are in Christ, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Apart from Christ, when Jesus shows up, he's coming back as a judge. And apart from Christ, we are guilty. And we should be terrified of of, of a judge that's coming to judge us if we are guilty, if we're standing on our own righteousness before our God, before the judge. But if we are Christians, if we put our trust in the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus' death and resurrection, when he appears, it's a great thing. We shout joyously, we rejoice. We don't shrink back anymore as if we have shame, but rather we long for his coming. We sing, Jesus, come back, because we know in Christ we have been forgiven. In Christ, there's no more shame. And finally, in Christ, we're resurrected. If you're a Christian right now, spiritually, you are a new creation. Spiritually, you have been resurrected. And not only spiritually now, but we're promised to be resurrected physically when Jesus returns. These actual physical bodies will be resurrected, restored, renewed, recreated if we are in Christ. We move from being a dead man walking we, we, we move from being mortally wounded and bleeding out to now being remade, remade day by day through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit with the promise that when Jesus comes, we will be fully and physically remade. We're going to close here today with this great summary of Jesus' salvation that we get from Romans 10. This great summary of Jesus' salvation that he both bought for us and offers for us. If you've never believed this before, today you can believe. Believe in a God who defeated your enemies and loved you so much that he went through hell so that you don't have to. Went through death so that you don't have to experience it. So if you've never believed this before, this is God's will for your life. Believe in it today. He offers it to you. Or if you've already believed it, remember that this is your reality. This is true for you. This is your identity. This is Jesus' salvation. This is what saves you from Satan, from sin and death. This is what brings you from being powerless, mortally wounded, mastered, overpowered, naked, full of shame, both physically and spiritually, this is what moves you from that into being loved and accepted and desired and made pure and made innocent and be secure. Romans ten nine through 11 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses And is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news in this wild, crazy, supernatural story in Acts 19. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you went through hell. You were brutally, shamefully tortured and mistreated, unjustly executed in our place because you love us so much. God, help us to not live in our former life, but to live in our identities as Christ, to live powerfully and worshipfully. God, we thank you for this good news that we're about to sing about. Help us to remember this good news uh, throughout the day and throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.